Well, good morning, dear church. If I don't get to tell you in person, Merry Christmas. We're celebrating the coming of Jesus at this time, and uh, I hope your hearts are being filled with that Christian truth. I do want to greet uh, our Cedar Lake campus and our, um, our HP campus joining us here today, um, and I hope that uh, God's blessing in those locations and that your joy is complete. I'll give you a reason to celebrate here today where we are delighted to be welcoming into our church family a, a, another round of new members, and uh, we have 71, uh, I believe, households or units and around 119 uh, total in those households, and we have, here's a, a, a collage, I'm sure you can recognize them very clearly in those pictures, but it gives you a sense of uh, all the folks that are, that are coming and joining our church family. So let's rejoice in this. Can we do this together? Amen. Amen. So uh, praise God. There's their names there for a moment. Uh, also, I'm going to just pause and uh, to highlight the beautiful Christmas trees that are behind me and to uh, thank my wife, Jennifer, for decorating these for us, and uh, they are very beautiful, and she has a real knack for this kind of thing, and so thank you, sweetheart, for blessing our church with them. We are continuing our, our little December Christmas series today. It's entitled, From Above to You, From Above to You, highlighting Jesus as God's gift to us, and indeed, there is something that Christmas and gifts—they just—they just go together, don't they? And we know that this started because Jesus is God's gift to us. And last week we looked at this from the perspective of the Gospel of of Luke, and we have uh, you know the angels and the shepherds, and we looked at how the angels emphasize something to those shepherds that that this baby over there in Bethlehem in swaddling clothes, this baby is uh, to you and for all the people. Even the bottom of the social ladder shepherds. And we talked about, why, I mean, why appear to the shepherds? Why did they hear the news before anybody else? Why not go to King Herod in Jerusalem or, or to uh, the Pharisees like Nicodemus or you know, to uh, the, the Roman governor Pilate? And I mean, these would, you'd think, would be the who would hear the news first. Uh, but no, it's the, it's the shepherds. And we talked about the reason for that is that if, if he had gone to Herod or Nicodemus or, or Pilate, the, all of us normal folks all these centuries later would wonder, did Jesus come for us? And so God determined to announce to the, the low-life shepherds, that's where they were in the social ladder at that time, so that all of us, I mean, I can't relate to Herod, I can't relate to Pilate, I can't relate to Nicodemus, but all of us spiritually can relate to the shepherds. And therefore we derive from that that if Jesus was a gift even to the shepherds, then, then Jesus is a gift for me. And so this uh, message today, we talk about a different gospel birth narrative, and there's only two to choose from. I don't know if you realize that or not. We have four gospels, but only two of them give any narrative. And we want to ask Matthew today, if Jesus is God's gift to us, what is it that we are receiving 
when we actually open the gift or when we receive the gift. And so we're in Matthew chapter 1 today, and, and if you've uh, read both of these, you know that, you know, compared to Luke, Matthew's account is extremely short. I mean, if you put them side by side, you realize that, that what Matthew doesn't include, like Matthew doesn't include anything about Zacharias and Elizabeth and the birth of John the Baptist. Zach, uh, Matthew doesn't include uh, Gabriel appearing to Mary in Nazareth. He, he, he doesn't include really anything about the political thing and the, and, the, and the registration and none of that stuff. I mean, if all we had was Matthew, the kids' Christmas pageants would look very different. Than they, than they do. Uh, and the reason for this is that Matthew's purpose is different than Luke's. Matthew is wanting, Matthew writes his gospel to a Jewish audience and he wants to convince those that would read his gospel that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament messianic prophecies. And so over and over again in Matthew, he'll say, and this was done to fulfill this particular prophecy. From the beginning to the end, Matthew does that. So we pick up the story here in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel uh, of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And that is Matthew's birth narrative. So Luke tells the story from Mary's perspective, and uh, you know Luke at the beginning of his gospel, he says that he carefully researched these things. It's very possible that Luke actually talked to Mary about how that whole thing went down, because there's details in the story that only a mother would, would, would know and probably remember. But Matthew now, again, is written to Jews. He's making an argument for Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, and you'll note that he begins his gospel not with the, the birth of Jesus, but he begins it with a genealogy. I mean, it's a long list of names, all of these substantiating that Jesus was in the line of David and that Joseph indeed was a son of David and that Joseph would be the one who names Jesus, and we'll get into that in just a moment. So our focus is uh, going to be in verse 21, but let's process this story together. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, there is baked into just that little portion there a whole bunch of first century Jewish culture that is critical to understand how Jesus was Incarnated, So he, he introduces it with this small-town girl, 
uh, named Mary is betrothed to this small town uh, boy, guy, man, named Joseph. And uh, so we stop, if we stop right there, this would sound like, you know, half of the country songs that you listen to, right? This is just sort of a normal thing. Small town girl, small town guy, they, they're getting married. Although it says here that they were betrothed. What does that mean, betrothed? We don't use that language very often. You know, people don't, uh, look, at, look at my ring. I'm now betrothed to somebody. We don't use that language. And, and actually, betrothal in the Jewish custom was very different than even our engagement in the way that we uh, practice this in our, in our culture. It was actually much closer to truly being married. Like to be betrothed, there was a ceremony that you went through and there were promises that were, that were made. Uh, there were dowries that were paid. Now a dowry, what's a dowry? A dowry is money that would come with the daughter into the marriage. Some cultures, it's, you know, the, the guy pays for it, but in the Jewish culture, it was money that came with the daughter into the, into the, into the new, the new uh, marriage. Now, right now, some of you might be saying to yourself, I didn't ask about that when I got married. And if you're a, a dad of daughters, you're really glad we don't practice that in our current culture. And I would raise my hand and say, boy, I'm glad about that. Uh, but if you did happen to forget about this, husbands, you might want to bring it up over Christmas dinner here in a few weeks. Ask your father-in-law, hey, you know, I forgot to bring up that dowry about marrying your daughter. Is it too late to do that? You let me know how that goes. Uh, I'm going to say not very well. But what is important here in the story is that this betrothal means that Mary and Joseph were promised to each other, but uh, sexual intimacy during betrothal was strictly forbidden. Uh, this would have been approximately one year of, of celibate, promissory living with one another. It was actually considered adultery uh, to, to do so during a betrothal. The law allowed for a stoning as punishment. That'll get most couples' attention. Although by the first century, apparently it wasn't very much practiced, if at all. But it certainly would involve, in a small town like Nazareth, where everybody knows everybody's you know, business. If you're from a small town, or maybe you happen to live in a smaller town around here, that's what you all, everybody knows everybody's business there. Imagine in a small little Jewish enclave like Nazareth, what it would mean if there had been uh, some evidence of some impropriety. So betrothal was basically marriage except living together and sleeping together. So it is during this final stage of waiting to be married that Mary is showing a baby bump. And the emphasis here on this is before they came together. And so here you have Joseph, this is told more from Joseph's perspective, Joseph is, uh, jo Joseph knows in the way that only the guy could know that he is not the person involved in the baby bump. Now this doesn't prove a virgin conception, but it does show Joseph's reasonable perspective on the baby bump with the woman that he's betrothed to be married to. Now, the Old Testament law provided an out in such situations. 
Joseph legitimately could have, could have divorced Mary, given her papers and said, okay, this betrothal is over. He would have been totally legitimate in doing so. But Matthew here, he notes Joseph's character, being a just man and not willing to put her to shame. And I think we get a hint from that language that for Joseph, this was much more than just a social contract marriage. He wasn't just doing this to, uh, you know, fulfill the cultural expectation that Joseph apparently actually loved Mary. And doesn't that sort of enrich the story a little bit to see Mary and Joseph uh, actually caring for one another? And Joseph loved her and didn't want to put her to shame. And the text says that he, want, he makes plans now to divorce her quietly, to divorce her in a way that would not uh, uh, diminish her. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now we read into uh, this story as uh, now 21st century Christians, uh, you know, 20, 20 centuries of, of Trinitarian doctrine being understood and being explored. But Joseph here, all he has is the Old Testament scriptures. And if you were to derive a doctrine of the Holy Spirit from the, whole, from the Old Testament, it's a little vague, actually. And you can almost imagine Joseph in the dream hearing these words that she's pregnant from the Holy Spirit and maybe even asking Gabriel, what's the Holy Spirit? Or who is the Holy Spirit? Hard to know. But we do know that Joseph adequately understood that what was in Mary, who was in Mary, was of God. And that really is the key and is why the doctrine of, of the virgin birth is so precious to us, is that, what, that salvation is from God. That even the way that Jesus came into the world evidences the fact that this was not man's doing. If there's anything that says this is not man's doing, I say a virgin birth is that. Especially a virgin conception, which is really the miracle. That salvation is from God. Virgin birth. We treasure that doctrine here. Amen. Okay, amen. The rest of what he says here is the focus of our message today. Verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Now realize, until ultrasounds, Joseph here is one of the few dads in all of human history who knew the gender of his baby before it came out. He, you will, she will give birth to a son. Now, why is that critical? Well, I shared recently with you that my understanding of the Jewish custom in that time was when a woman was about to give birth, the family and the friends would gather together, and they would be all ready. They would bring the instruments, and they would bring you know, the festivities, and they would await to see the gender of the baby. And if it was a boy that was born, they would break forth in song and dance and be clapping and cheering. Why? Because this could be the Messiah. The Messiah had to be a male based on Old Testament prophecy, and so they would celebrate that. 
If the baby that was born was a girl, they would go home. Now, speaking as a dad of daughters, I think they got that all wrong, just to be, to be uh, clear. But that's the way that it went. Such was the expectation, the messianic expectation of the day. So the angel says, you're going to have a son. This is going to be a boy. And notice the next priority beyond gender is his name. And you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus. And that whole idea of naming a child in the Jewish culture, I think even to this day, has a certain significance beyond maybe what is normal. This was the right of the father, and it was in the culture, it highlighted the connection in the Jewish culture generationally with this child and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How often do we hear those names repeated again and again? Even from God, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There is this very much generational, ethnic, religious connection in the Jewish culture and the name, oh, so important, is the name. And often the name would be a family name. That was the expectation. Now, I don't think George Foreman is Jewish, but he gets the sense of it by naming all five of his sons George. You want to ensure that every kid, every son has a connection to you? You name him, all of them after you. You might remember in Luke 1, when, uh, when, when John the Baptist was born, remember Zacharias couldn't speak after the vision he had of the angel, and the angel said that your, your elderly wife is going to give birth, and he's like, ah! And that was pretty much the way he was until John was born. And, and so John is born, and they ask Elizabeth, because Zacharias hasn't been able to talk for nine months, what is the name of this kid? And she said, his name will be John. And uh, if you know the story, they, 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 they're perplexed. The family's perplexed. John, we don't have any family members named John. What does that mean? We expect you to name this within the family here. And of course, you know the story. Zacharias settles the matter by writing on a tablet, his name is John, just like the angel told him to do. So names are important. I mean, just to highlight the fact that this is a chapter filled with names. We started in verse 18, but the first 17 verses is the genealogy of, of Jesus. 42 generations of names. And then you get to this verse, and the angel, beyond saying it's a son, immediately goes to the name that this son shall be. Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus. The most famous name in all the world, even to this day, arguably, Jesus. Jesus is actually a Latin version of Jesus' name. You didn't know you knew Latin, did you? Whenever you pray to Jesus, you're, you're praying in, in, in Latin. It's, it's, the Jesus, it's the Latin form of Jesus' name. It comes from the Greek, which the New Testament was written in, which would be Iesus, is it in the, in the Greek? But remember, Joseph probably didn't know Greek. And so when the angel talked to him, what language did he talk to him in? It would have been in Hebrew. 
Which, as a side note, have you ever thought about what language are we going to speak in heaven? Like, are we all, is everybody in heaven talking in English? We can only hope so. Uh, you know, do the angels, tra- are they up there just translating all these different languages so we can talk to one another? I don't know. What language do angels speak? Probably whatever language they want to, but at least here we know he was speaking in Hebrew. And so what Joseph heard the angels say was not, you shall name him Jesus, because that's Latin. And he did not hear, you shall name him Iesus, because that's Greek. What did Joseph actually hear his name should be? It would have been this, Yeshua. You shall name him Yeshua. Was there already a Yeshua in the, in the, in the family line? We actually don't know. One researcher of, of names in the first century in Israel determined that that Yeshua or Jesus was the sixth most common male name at that time. But we don't know if there was a family member in that, in that name, but we do know that the angel didn't really give a rip whether there was one or not. Because when you're an angel, you're not concerned about what the family thinks, you care about what God thinks. And God sent this angel to Joseph and, and with the express uh, orders, you tell Joseph to name him Yeshua. That shall be his name. Why Yeshua? The longer form of Yeshua is, if I can say this right, Yehoshua, or we say it Joshua. And Joshua means Yahweh saves. Okay? Yahweh saves. Yeshua is the shortened version of that, which focuses on the verb saves, okay? And if you make that a noun, what is the noun? Savior. Savior. You shall call his name Yeshua, Jesus, Savior. And notice he doesn't stop there. Okay, he could have just said, okay, My mission's done here, I'm out of here. But he goes on now to explain, and here's a mercy from God, to explain why of all the names that that, uh, this child could have, you are to call him Jesus. What is the purpose behind that? He says, for he shall save his people from their sins. The explanation behind the name. And what we see here is that Jesus' name by God's divine design is to explain his mission in coming here to earth. And that's what I want you to see here is that God's name, this gift that he has given to us, is itself a hint as to the nature of the gift. It's a clue as to why Jesus came. Now, parents, maybe you can relate to this if you've already got a few presents under the tree or you can think back to last year. And and if you have children, you know that they're eyeing those presents. They're already looking to see which one of them has their name on it, which one of them's for brother or sister. They're counting how many presents there are. They're evaluating the size. They're speculating in their mind what is possibly in there. When you're not looking, they're shaking it, right? 
And they're probably already pressing you, Mommy or Daddy, can you give me a hint? Don't tell me what it is. I just want a hint about what is in that little uh, uh, package there. Please, Daddy, please give me a little hint. I want to know. And here's what we have God doing on that very first uh, Christmas is he is giving all of us a very clear hint, a clue as to the nature of this gift. His name, Jesus, his mission to save his people from their sins. Secondly, we also see in this clue from God's perspective, what it is that we actually need, right? What do we need? I'm sure all of you have had the experience of receiving a gift that you really didn't like. And you know that experience of sort of feigning, oh, thank you. And maybe if it's one of these gifts, you're kind of like, what is it exactly? And they're like, well, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's something for, your, uh, for the toilet roll in your bathroom. Oh, thank you. In your mind, you're thinking white elephant gift, right? Uh, but you know that feeling of receiving a gift that, that you, you, know, you don't understand. What it's, why did you give me this gift? Or maybe you've received a gift and you've been offended by the gift because of what the gift insinuates that the giver of the gift is saying that you actually need. So for example, what happens, what does a wife think when the husband gives her a present and it's a subscription to Weight Watchers? Is the husband trying to say something there? Or if the wife gives a gift to the husband and it's a book entitled, How to Be a Better Husband, is she trying to say something by the, the nature of the actual gift? The gift is saying something about the need. That's the point I'm making here. The gift is saying something about the need. And in a much more serious way, when we look at this story and this description in verse 21, what God is saying by the nature of the gift is from his perspective what our greatest need is. And what is our greatest need? We are sinners. And what do sinners need? Sinners need a savior. And if sinners don't realize they're, a, they're sinners, but the God of heaven saves, sends a savior for sinners, it ought to tell us what our real need is. One commentator said it this way, there's a sense in which this statement is not only Christological in nature, in what it says about Mary's child, but also anthropological. For it says that the gospel readers, both past and present, are the kind of people who need a savior. And what a wonderful point this is to consider this Christmas, that God's gift indicates our greatest need. And what is the greatest need that sinners have? We desperately need our sins forgiven. We desperately need our guilt taken away. We desperately need to be made right with a holy God. We need to be reconciled with him. And our greatest need in a world of death is eternal life. Last night I was on the phone with family in our church. 
We prayed about them earlier. And I was able to call into the hospital room. And dad was dying. They knew he was dying. What do you talk about in moments like that? The ball game in the afternoon? His career? What do you talk about in a moment like that? All the silly, superficial stuff goes away. You know what you talk about with a Christian family in the moments before their loved one dies? You talk about the gospel. You talk about the hope of eternal life. You talk about the promises of God. And that's what I did. And 30 minutes later, he stepped into glory. What is the greatest need for, that we have? We need our sins forgiven. And lo and behold, what did God send to us? He sent a Savior. He gave us Yeshua. Friends, realize if God had sent a doctor, we'd all know our bodies are sick. If God had sent a politician, we'd know our government was broken. If God had sent a plumber, we'd know our pipes are leaking. If God had sent a soldier, we'd know we're going to war. If God had sent an architect, we'd know that we're building something. But God sent a savior. If God had sent an electrician, we'd know our wires are crossed. If God had sent a midwife, we'd know we're pregnant. If God had sent a pastor, we'd know we need a sermon. If God had sent a teacher, we'd know we need some learning. But God sent a savior. If God had sent a mailman, we'd, we'd know that we had mail coming. If God had sent a pilot, we'd know we're going on a trip. If God had sent a chef, we'd know we were in for a feast. If God had sent a farmer, we'd know we needed food. But God sent a savior. If God hadn't sent a savior, we'd think Christmas was about trees and toys. If God hadn't sent a savior, we'd assume that we and God are good. If God hadn't sent a savior, We'd, we'd not be saved from our sins. If God had not sent a Savior, we'd think our sins were no big deal. But praise God, God sent a Savior. So who God sends is the indication of what we need. It perfectly corresponds to our greatest needs. And there is one more easily missed part of the angel's words that I think may make the difference for you between an eternity in heaven and an eternity in hell. And it's easily missed in what he said. For he will save all people from their sins. Is that what the text says? No. He will save his people from their sins. Even before Jesus is born, we see that Jesus would bring division on earth, that he would, he would bring division in all of humanity, that those are his people, these will be saved. And Jesus later, as he grows up, he would call them his sheep. The apostles will call this group the elect, the church, the redeemed. And the angel foretells this salvation, this gospel, and he does so and says that it is actually particular. Or to say it this way, that Jesus is a savior only 
to those who believe in him as their savior. And this is where Christianity and the gospel and even Christmas, properly understood, is offensive in our modern day. The, the, the modern person today is fine with Christmas, as long as Christmas is awesome retail. And they're fine with Christmas as long as Christmas is family gatherings. And they're fine with Christmas as long as Christmas is gift giving and gift receiving. They're fine with the cultural trappings of Christmas, the songs of Christmas, the experience of Christmas. But the modern person rejects an exclusive Christmas and an exclusive salvation. But that is what the angel here said. And you know, when you're an angel, you don't care what people think. You care what God thinks. And he said exactly what God wanted him to say. That this baby born in Bethlehem is not a savior to all people. He is a savior to his people. And the question in this is, is not, you know, you know was there a, a, a donkey and you know, the this and the that? No, it is, am I one of his people? Are you, friend, included in this? Not because you like Christmas and you like the story and you like all the, no, no. That is completely irrelevant. It is whether or not you believe this baby born in Bethlehem grew up and died on the cross at Calvary and three days later walked out of that tomb and is right now at the right hand of God and that he is coming back and he is going to rule and reign as King of kings and Lord of lords and whether you believe that or not and if he is your savior or not. That's the question. It's the bottom line of Christmas. To receive this blessing requires a sinner to understand that Jesus was sent here to meet my greatest need. And I just want to ask today, here, middle of December, we're in the thick of Christmas celebrations. Is he your savior? Is he? And if not, what better year than 2020 <laughs> to realize that this world is not where my hope can be? That my sense of control and being in charge and being the man or being the woman and you know, being the center of my own universe, what better year than 2020 to be reminded that we're not that great and that we don't control anything? What better year to recognize there is life and there is death? What better country to recognize that when yesterday 3,000 people died of COVID-19? And they say every day for the next couple months, more than Pearl Harbor, more than 9-11, every day Americans are gonna die. Are you in control of your destiny? The only destiny you and I have is death. And we die because we're sinners. And this is the glory of Christmas is our greatest need, which is so highlighted right now, is simultaneously the very reason that God sent Jesus into this world to meet our greatest need. And won't you put your hope and trust, your, your true faith in him 
and become a Christian and experience the confidence of forgiveness of sins. And when I die, like our dear brother last night, to step into glory and to step into eternal life. This is why he came. And this is what it means to be one of his people. And I just call you to trust in Jesus today. And if you are here joining online and you already are a Christian, what's the point? It is to rejoice that when the angel said he will save his people from their sins 2,000 years ago, an angel of God, Gabriel himself, was talking about you, talking about me. Praise God, his people. We are his people by faith in him. All praise and glory be to Jesus today. Amen.